you have your Bibles, turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. We're going to be reading verses 10 through 24 as we begin. 10 through 24. And we'll discuss um, the text as we wrap up chapter, chapter 3 this morning. Let's begin in verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. This morning we're going to be talking about the call to love that John brings up here in this text. And if we were to ask ourselves whether we love people the way that we ought to, most of us would have many different ways that we would answer that question. If someone was to ask us, do we love so-and-so, and you fill in the blank of who that person would be, many times we would say, yes, I do. I love that brother or sister. I love my spouse. I love my children. And the question is, what is the love that we're called to here in this text? We're going to talk a little bit about that this morning. You see, most believers tend to not think of themselves as being hateful to other believers. But what scripture calls us out for here is the fact that if we don't love the way God calls us to, that we are essentially hating our brothers and sisters. And so this morning we're going to be looking at two things. Number one, love contrasted, verses 10 through 15. And number two, love shown, verses 16 through 24. Number one, love contrasted, verses 10 through 15. Let's read that again. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 
You see, John jumps right back into something we had already mentioned before in the book, contrasting the walking in light and walking in darkness. And we're going to be getting into some of these details further, stating here that there are differences between the children of God and the children of the devil. He's not going out of his way to prove that the devil exists. This is a, a fact that he assumes right off the bat. John is not telling us, let's discuss whether Satan exists. It's a given by John. As we've mentioned before, there are only two groups of people on the earth. Those who are the children of God and those who are the children of the devil or Satan. All those on the earth are not children of God by default. Whenever makes, a person makes the statement, we're all children of God, they're lying to you. They're not being biblically sound. And what's even more unfortunate is this garbage comes from many churches. We're all children of God. Based on what? Your opinion or God's word? Because God's word clearly tells us that by default we start as children of wrath or children of Satan or children of the devil before we've ever known God. If you listen to a Christian author that claims these things, that we are all children of God, they are wrong. They are not accurate. They are going against John's clear statement that there are only two categories, implying that we are all not the same one. There are clear tells or identifiers to whether or not a person is a child of God, based on this text. Number one, here's a big one, and this is really where sometimes it can be subjective, but it's very objective if we have the Holy Spirit working in us. But first of all, do they practice righteousness? Do they practice righteousness? He says, this is how it's evident that you are a child of God. Do they care to live out their lives in alignment to the standards of God? Simply put, when it comes to practicing righteousness, these are to be indicators of a child of God in the way that they live. And as with anything we would typically practice, there would be more conformity the more we've done it. Have you ever practiced an instrument in your life? And if you started music, quit on music, continue to practice, continue to get better, eventually what happens is if you practice something enough, you get better at it. I promise you, anybody that plays any instrument does not pick it up and is a legend player. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes effort, it takes a long process many times. Now you have the exceptions, right? The prodigies that are five years old that can play all sorts of pieces that blow you away. You're like, how did God gift them that way? Yeah, those are exceptions. Those are not the rule. But as with anything in life, the more you practice, the more you get better at it. So it is with righteousness. The more you and I make that a point in practice in our lives, the more we are conformed to the image of Christ. It ties into that. By the way, there is no autopilot or autoconformity to the image of Christ, believer. There's an effort that's involved, that's necessary. There is a call to practice righteousness. And believer, you will either grow in your practice of sin or in your practice of righteousness. And you know it's true if you just look back and even this last month and how you've lived. Have you grown in your practice of righteousness or have you fallen into the trap of the old man and practice in sin? 
Those are both viable options for believers. And unfortunately, what ends up happening is most people tend to think their walk with God means, well, I'm conforming to Christ, so I will get there a little bit at a time, but it really is a zigzag pattern sometimes, isn't it? You make a couple steps forward, five steps back, three steps forward, ten steps back. I mean, that's our walk with Christ many times, isn't it? It's not a clear path to conformity to Christ. Because the truth is, effort is required of each one of us. God promises that he's going to do that in our lives, but that's also knowing that we are going to stumble along the way. Number two, and this is the other tell or identifier whether a person is a child of God, do they love their brother? Or do they have a love for the brethren, as this text says? This will be expounded on here in the text. But simply put, is the love for other saints clearly evident in their lives? The disdain that many believers and so-called believers have for those that do the first part, practice righteousness, shows that they are aligning with the wrong group. If it bothers you and me that someone's trying to live a holy life before God, we might want to realize that we're not doing the second one well in loving the brethren as we ought to. What we're not talking about in the first indicator is a pharisaical practicing of righteousness to impress others. We're not talking about trying to do things so people think we're more righteous. That is not at all what that text is talking about. What that text is talking about is there is an evidence in the way this person lives their life that is clear for others around them that they live to please God. And, and let's, be, let's be frank for a moment and, and, and admit to ourselves that we've been a little pharisaical at times ourselves, have we not? Have you ever changed something only to make sure that you looked more spiritual? Have you changed something in your priorities sometimes to make it look better to people around you? Well, you know, I'm, I gotta be consistent because I told people I, I, I think this is valuable or important in my life. Are you doing it for the right reason? You see, the truth is, our righteousness or practicing of righteousness needs to be genuine, not fraudulent. When a desire to purify oneself and practice righteousness is evident, then the second one, which is loving your brethren the way you ought to, can be done correctly. If the first one's not done right, if you don't care to live an upright, righteous life before God, then your love for the brethren is going to be really tainted. It's going to be off. You're not going to be doing it correctly. Too many today want to love somebody without a care for righteousness. Simply trying to step into their shoes without a call to truth. Look, empathizing with people is important, but that's not what Jesus called us to. And unfortunately, a lot of Christianity today is, well, we just need to feel for people. We just need to understand where they're coming from. And yes, that's a part of what we need to do. That isn't the whole part. Understanding where someone's coming from doesn't necessarily mean you're going to tell them where they need to go. In fact, what's even worse is many Christians are sympathetic, empathetic to such an extent that essentially what they do is leave a person where they are and go, it's perfectly fine. Brother, sister, I know you're struggling. I'm struggling too. Let's stay in misery together. That's essentially what they're saying many times. Because there's no call to righteousness. There's no call to pursue Christ. 
There are others that simply want to hold the line on truth and righteousness without showing love to those in opposition. You can't simply try to balance grace and truth or love and righteousness as we see here in this text. They are both required at all times and they're never to be balanced out. You don't get to go, hey, you know what? Um, you need to be righteous and love people. They both have to be there. And your goal isn't to try to balance them out, but to live both out. They're both required at all times and should never be balanced out. False teaching should always be called out because truth matters and righteous living matters. False teaching typically leads to false living by default. Love for the brethren is always shown to be in light of what scripture clearly reveals. Do you want to know how to love somebody correctly in the church? Then follow what Jesus and the apostles taught. Don't come up with your own concoctions of what it looks like. Jesus was not ultimately hated for his kind deeds. I don't know if you knew that. He was hated for his exclusive teaching. Never wavering on the standard of God's word, but in stating that he himself was God. And he could forgive sin. In fact, if you look back in John chapter 8, if you can turn there right now. In John chapter 8, there's a woman caught in adultery, brought before Jesus by the Pharisees. So that they could trap Jesus into breaking the Mosaic law and not charging her. Or if he did agree, they could use it against him as ammunition to destroy his credibility and ministry to those around him. Jesus simply turns the tables on the accusers and asks them if they have sinned themselves. Constable points this out in his commentary, that Jesus did not mean that the accusers needed to be sinless. The law did not require that, but that they be innocent of the particular sin of the accused. Jesus meant that they needed to be free from the sin of adultery, or at least free of complicity in prearranging this woman's adultery. They had asked him to pass judgment, and now he was exercising his rightful function as the judge of humankind. Instead of passing judgment on the woman, he was passing judgment on her judges. You see, what we see here in that text, and we're going to read a little bit further, what Jesus does here, he advocates for the woman as the righteous judge. And the scribes and the Pharisees leave one by one. But notice what Jesus says to the woman. We're going to read this part in verses 9 through 11. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Notice what Jesus doesn't do here. Jesus doesn't ask the question, are you guilty? She was. She was guilty. 
She knew she was. He asked where her accusers were, and they were nowhere to be found. There would be a time for her to still stand before Jesus one day as judge of the earth. This was not that time, because the accusers were not qualified, nullifying her case. Jesus finishes with the phrase, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more. What she did was a sin, but the time to pass judgment was not then. Jesus never said it wasn't a sin and that she was fine doing what she was doing, unlike many evangelicals today. Oh, we're all sinners. You're perfectly fine. I totally understand. No, Jesus still called sin, sin. Jesus would one day be condemned for the very sin this woman committed and you and I commit. His tension with Pharisees only increased after declaring himself the light of the world shortly after and others believing him. In response to the Pharisees' declaration of being children of Abraham and of God, this ties right back into the first John text we're talking about, with God being their father rather than Satan, Jesus says the following in verses 42 on. He says, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. What Jesus is getting at here to the Pharisees is that you are not in the same category as I am. You are not of God. Jesus has the audacity to tell these Pharisees, religious leaders, that they are of the devil. What essentially Jesus is saying in the text is what John is saying back in 1 John 3, that those of God desire the things of God. And they're opposed by those who hate the truth. Believer, it shouldn't matter to you whether or not the word of God is attractive to you when you read it. It should matter to you and me. One area for us to consider is whether or not it angers you when someone is living an upright life before God. You ever see someone who God is blessing? And he's blessing because they're doing it his way. And something in you kind of creeps up, and it's really a carnal thought. You want to see them stumble. You want them to struggle as you are. You want them to fall as you have. Has that ever happened to you? Am I the only person that's ever been 
really messed up inside thinking these thoughts. It's almost as if we want to see somebody stumble sometimes, do we not? It can't be as good as it looks in their life. Does it anger you when someone speaks what God's word clearly says? You ever like the passages of scripture that apply to others but don't apply to you? Do we not pick and choose, right? I'm doing well in this area. I like this text of scripture. Not doing so well in this area. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to listen to that. I don't really want to face the truth. If we're to love one another, we should not have the attitude that Cain had in murdering his brother. And it clearly says it in the text. Why? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do you realize that John is talking to believers that have this tension? That have this tension of seeing people that are living an upright life before God and they're not agreeing with that. They don't want that. They're not abiding in Christ at that time. Believers who are offended with others for practicing righteousness are living in darkness at that time. Or even worse, have never been in the light and are masquerading as pretenders. The idea here for hate your brother or hate can mean the following. The word has multiple meanings in the Greek. The first one is to detest. Another one is to denounce. Third is to be indifferent to. Or simply to love less in comparison. Context would determine which meaning fits best with the text. Which, if you will, meaning of this word would matter and apply. For example, if you look back to Luke chapter 14, Jesus calls us into discipleship. And it's very clear what he means in that text. In Luke 14, 26 through 27, it says this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. It's clear in this text that God is not saying that you should have a disdain for your family. Or that he's calling us to be suicidal because we shouldn't care about life. What he's saying is in comparison to the love that you ought to have for me, it should pale in comparison. The love for others, the love for your own life even, should pale in comparison to your love for me and being my disciple. The idea of forsaking all to follow him comes with a cost. You ought to know that there is always going to be a cost, believer, to following faithfully. Believers that are in and out, in the light, in the darkness, in the light, in the darkness, they play the game because they want to get along with everyone. And Jesus is calling us to more and saying, if you want to be a disciple of mine, realize that the loyalty has to be there. When we come back to the text in 1 John, we'll see clearly what is implied. 
And if we see that, clearly the attitude is like Cain's attitude. In detesting that others are living an upright life, to simply being indifferent, which he mentions later on in the text, to another brother or sister further down in the passage in verse 17. Now I want you to notice something in 1 John that I think when we read this in this translation kind of misses the point a little bit. I think the King James actually nails it a whole lot better than the New King James does. John is actually painting a graphic picture in saying that anyone that hates his brother is a murderer. The word in the King James is slew or slay his brother. Murders are not what the children of God are to be. The word slew refers to brutal slaughter, to cut one's throat, to butcher. John is way more graphic than we even picture sometimes. It's the killing of sacrificial animals. In fact, this word is used in this text in the book of Revelation, reference to Christ as the lamb that was slain. Those that are slain on the earth. John is saying that we shouldn't be surprised that we are hated by the world. And it's possible that many of these meanings for this word can be used here. They can detest what we stand for, denounce our beliefs, you're a bigot, indifferent to or give preferential treatment against us. Bottom line, we shouldn't be surprised if they don't like us. If they hated Jesus, it was more than simply not liking him. It got more apparent. They were diametrically opposed to all he stood for. Believer, don't be shocked by the world not liking that we as Christians are doing what we can to try to protect our children. Or the standards of scripture that we're trying to live out seem to be so outdated. We're not progressive enough. Don't be surprised by that. By the way, progressive Christianity or progressivism itself isn't so progressive because carnal man's been doing these similar things centuries ago. It isn't something new. It's new to us as a nation because a lot of the moral standards we had here were based on the word of God. But if you were to go back to even when Christianity first started after Christ's ascension, you had all sorts of garbage going on in Greece, in Rome. Things that we, even today, are actually shocked by that we probably aren't going to be so shocked by in a few years when all these things become even more normalized. The influence of Christianity has spread far and wide in the world, and we really had a stronghold here in America for a long time. Not so much anymore. It's one of the reasons why many are not faithful in their marriages. Families are broken apart. The standards of scripture are not important anymore. Don't be shocked by the world not liking that we as Christians do what God's called us to. We are called to holiness, believer. And let me tell you right now, I think the big thing that we all need to be aware of all the time is it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It just doesn't. So many Christians want so much to be liked by everybody. You're not standing for anything if you're doing that. 
you have no enemies, that's not a good sign that you're faithful to Christ. You have no one that opposes what you stand for, then you're really what you call the person that hides their light under a bushel, the one that Jesus says not to do. Supposed to be shining forth. Not, I'm not going to tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know. The meaning of the word love here in this text matters as well. In a brief recap, now more of this you would actually be able to find in the series that we did on love. I'm not going to re-preach all of that here. But if you have a time to, to check it out online, we have it right in the app with much more detail. But essentially there are four words for love. Storge, which is one word for love, it refers to a familial love, the kind of love parents have for their children or siblings have between each other. Phileia is another word for love. It speaks of a brotherly love, a, a brotherly friendship and affection. This is a love of deep friendship and partnership. You get the city, Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. There's eros, which is a third love, word for love. This is a more romantic or erotic love between a husband and a wife. And then this is the word that's used in this text, agape love. It's the fourth word for love. It's described as a love that loves without changing, gives without expecting something in return or demanding something. It's a love that loves even when it's rejected. Agape is a divine love that's given to the children of God. It's a love that gives without demand or expectation of repayment for the love that's given. This is the love that's spoken of here many times in this text, and it's misunderstood by so many believers. So here's, here's the question to kind of ask, and John answers this for us. How do we know if we are loving? Like, okay, I need to love. I shouldn't hate, I should love. How do I know that I'm being loving? How can I be sure? Well, John doesn't leave us to a subjective feeling, right? Well, I feel like I love people. Number two, love shown. Here's how we know. Verses 16 through 24. By this, what does John say? We know love. Because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. What does he start off with? By this we know love. Do you want to know the definition of love? Look no further than Jesus himself. Everyone wants to jump to a subjective feeling 
or certain experiences that they see in others' lives, the first place for every believer to look is in the face of Christ. Because he laid down his life for us. You want love? That's love. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You take your cue from Christ, not from someone else around you. You and I aren't to live our Christian life comparing whether or not we're loving better than someone else. Our comparison is Jesus. Am I loving like him? You know you're loving others when you're willing to lay down your life for them. When the good of others matters more than your own, we are exemplifying this kind of love. Jesus didn't spare his own life for you and me. He gave his life up for you and me. John brings in a real scenario that we can all relate to in verse 17. Notice what he says. Whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? That's a real-life scenario that John brings up. If we've been given more than enough and see someone in need in our congregation, but don't care to meet that need, we're essentially saying that we're not abiding in God's love. Believer, God has loved us so much that we ought to love others. He's demonstrated that. God has met our needs so that we can meet the needs of others. It's like anything God has given you, he never meant for you to hoard for yourself. Starting with the gospel message. He gave you Christ not so you could keep him to yourself. He gave you Jesus so you can share Jesus with others. He gave you the things in this life not so you can just store up for yourselves like that foolish rich man who says, I'm just going to build bigger barns. I'm going to have all this stuff. He gave you all of that for his praise and glory. And that means that if you have somebody around you that is in need, you are to give and help them if you are able to. This is all in the context, by the way, of a local church. Which makes the church that does this all the more attractive and beautiful, more beautiful bride of Christ to the world. Do we want Sovereign Grace Church to be what God would want it to be? Well, this is an area that would really make it stand out. This would be the area that would really make a difference in people's lives if we had a love for one another that Scripture calls us to. The works of the saints who love one another as they should stands as a testimony to the world that despises the things of God. You know what the world can't argue with? People that have a love for one another. They can be jealous of it, they can be angry at it, but they can't argue it. Think of it this way, believer. Your brother or sister, your fellow brother or sister in Christ gets beaten up enough in the world. They need your support. 
You know what's worse? Is when a brother or sister gets beaten up by the world and then she get, he or she gets pummeled by other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead of being picked up, they get further knocked down. John takes it a step further. Look at what he says. My little children, verse 18, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Stop talking about how you love people. God doesn't want that. God wants you to do that. Everybody talks a big game sometimes. Other believers should show that they love one another by their actions, not by just the, merely their words. Your love for the brethren should be the very thing that those outside the faith should notice about you. If all you do is complain about the church, disregard other believers' needs, and seek approval from the world, you have it all wrong. There's nothing more disheartening and disgusting for a believer to do than to trash other saints in front of the world. You ever have problems in your family, and I'm talking your regular family, not the family of God, and you have stuff at home that you have to deal with? How many of us go air that publicly? I want you to think practically about that and how we do that spiritually with our brothers and sisters. We air all the dirty laundry. When God wants us to work those things out here, that doesn't mean we tolerate all sorts of things and let everything go. That's not what I'm saying here. That's not what the text is saying here. Wrong is wrong and still should be called out. But too many of us want the approval of the world without loving the brethren that way we ought to. John will be calling out all those that apologize or belittle the church while sucking up to the world. He's essentially going, why are you going to the world for approval? There's nothing more disheartening or discouraging than seeing a brother or sister seek the world's support and encouragement while disregarding what's available in the community of their local church. Listen, believers, there are horrible things that have been done in the church that ought to be dealt with directly in the context of that local church. What's unfortunate is that so many care more to be loved by the rest of the world at the expense of their own brothers or sisters. There are unspeakable things that have been done in the church that should be dealt with as Scripture lays out in church discipline. If the church is to be a family, then those things need to be dealt with correctly. It does not mean that we hide or tolerate abuse or corruption. Neither does it mean approving and sinful lifestyles that God is clearly against. It should bother a church to live purely before God in taking care of things that are wrong in the church and not approving of what the world does outside the church. We as believers love by caring for those in our midst but always in a proper understanding of Scripture, not simply going off of what we feel or think at that time. 
Listen, believer, if we're to live in light of what Jesus calls us to and loving the way he has called us to, then realize that there's going to be a sacrifice involved. Agape love is a sacrificial love. So many of us are looking for the grand, courageous things to do for others when God is calling us to do the small things well. We like to think that if someone walked in with a gun and it was going to put, put it to one of our brothers and sisters, we would go ahead and stop and step in front of that. My question to you and me is, are we doing the small things today that matter? Not just looking for the grand things. Be there for them instead of being too busy or not noticing what's going on in others' lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer made this statement. He says, the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. Is that something we're doing? Do we pause and listen to our brothers and sisters? Here's another one. Do we pray for them instead of complaining about them? The next time you choose to complain about somebody in this church that bothers you and you don't like the way they do certain things or the way they say things, pray for them instead. Imagine what difference that would make. And this goes as, as personal as even your home. Children to parents, husbands and wives, Instead of complaining about your spouse, instead of complaining about your children, instead of complaining about your parents, what if you prayed for them? What if you would be so revolutionary that instead of being and doing exactly what the world does, you take God's approach? Because I promise you, God's going to change your heart a whole lot more than you realize if you did that. It's very easy to complain. You see it throughout scripture. It's easy to complain. It's a whole lot harder to take those things that God's given us, even the difficult things in life, and line that, align that with his providence and realize that he has a purpose for it and a reason why we're going through this, even when it's totally horrible. What if we encouraged other saints instead of belittling them? Look, some of us, we love sarcasm. Sometimes it downright hurts others. And we need to be careful. Here's another one. Give where you can instead of only looking for what you can take personally. Don't view your brothers and sisters as a transaction. If I give them this, they'll give me that later. God save us from viewing people that way. Sure hope that's not the reason we married our spouse. For only what we can get. Everyone wants to go change the world but they don't care to love those closest them, to them the way God expects. Listen, believer, it's the very reason why we think the world loves us better sometimes than other brothers and sisters in the church do. You know why? 
The world isn't clo close enough to understand what your relationship with God is really like. And they can't relate to the, you in that anyways. Don't be deceived by someone you barely even know saying something or doing something nice for you at the expense of separating from those that care that you may have friction with at a certain time. That friction, by the way, believer, can make you stronger. Did you know that? I have found some of the best relationships that I've had with people come from a moment of friction that happened or tension. It was almost as if we came colliding, and then from that moment, the relationship grew. Conflict is unavoidable, believers. Tension will always be there. There will always be things that we do to ruffle each other's feathers, if you will. And let me, let me promise you one thing, it won't ever stop. Because none of us have achieved glory yet. Just realize that sometimes the tension between you and another saint is a means by which God is maybe causing you to grow and you just don't want it. Like sometimes instead of getting angry at a person for calling us out on something, maybe we pause and go, you know what? There's a point that they made that makes sense. Maybe they really do have my best interest at heart and I'm just taking it the wrong way. Someone being nice to you without telling you the truth or the cause of your problems isn't what you want. It won't help you. You may not want to hear it, but what you and I need is a gracious, loving brother or sister who tells us the truth. Which is why the approach does matter as well. It isn't enough to tell a brother or sister you need to do better. We need to show them how. We need to exemplify that. How about instead of complaining about how others aren't living their life correctly, you show them by example how to live. You work on those spiritual disciplines that are lacking in your life. How about instead of standing in awe of how somebody else does things better than you do, you, you actually learn from them. So many of us quote so many people, right? If you know any, any, any Bible characters in the scriptures or any authors we're like oh these people love god look at their amazing life look at what god did do you want to live the way they do though do you have the kind of discipline those people had why step back and stand in awe when you actually have been given the same holy spirit that they've been given god's given you all the same tools In fact, you have something greater than David. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. You've been sealed. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You know, believer, here's what the text is saying. There are times that you may feel condemned even though you are walking right before God. You ever had that happen? You're walking faithfully with God, but for some reason you feel condemned. We can be deceived, as was mentioned earlier in the book. 
It's important to see that our obedience to the commands of Scripture will bring confidence in our walk before God. You want confidence in your walk with God? Obey what the Word says. You want to have a lot of doubt? Disregard it. Just do your own thing and hope it works out. You'll have a lot of doubt in life. Our desires will align with His and we will ask in line with His will and receive those things. This isn't one of those texts where some people abuse it and say, God will just give you whatever you want. He will give you whatever you want if you're in line with His commandments. That's the qualifier. God is not going to give whatever we want if we want to live carnally and live apart from Him. Oh, he may for a short time, but the consequences will come down on us. We need to stop reading the Bible with this self-centered, if I only have enough faith, God will give me whatever I want. That's not what this text is saying. But rather, with a desire to abide in him, we will have all we ever could want, because we have him. Essentially, we abuse verses that are meant to show that God has more for us if we delight in him than ourselves and our own desires. In fact, Psalm 37, 4, David makes the statement. He says, delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. The whole point of this verse is not ask whatever you want as a selfish, narcissistic, self-centered human. And God will give it to you. The whole point of this verse is to start right in the beginning. Delight yourself in the Lord. Align with His will. Whatever His desires are. And those things will be granted to you. A person who's aligned with God, when God blesses them with certain things in this life, they continue to want to use those things for His glory. Let's put it in practical terms that I think all of us, when we see the economy going down the drain, can, can, can relate to. When our paychecks aren't where we want them to be and God blesses us and God gives us something in increase, those that are saints of God that delight in his word will be using those things still to do what he's called them to. They'll make sacrifices where they need to. They're not going to just be stingy and think of only themselves when God blesses them. I've got more for me. That's not going to be their attitude. That's not the way they view money. They see it as a loan from God himself. And that we're to be a steward of his. The commandment specifically mentioned in the closing of this chapter is that believers are commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and love the brethren. These are non-negotiables. These are commanded by Christ. Our fellowship is intact when we continue to obey his commandments. And the Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are his. His spirit bears witness with our spirit, as Paul says in Romans, that we are the children of God. That'll give us way more confidence than another person. So in conclusion, church, here's my question to you and me. How is your love for the brethren? How is your love for the brethren? 
You see, today we're not talking about your love for everybody on this earth, but specifically to those God has placed in your spiritual family. And by the way, if you're a family that goes to church, your family is also part of that. It's not like a separate thing and you think of everybody outside your actual family. If you're a follower of Jesus, that includes your personal family. Is there hatred where there should be love? Maybe you're like, no, I don't disdain people, but I really don't care for them either. Maybe you've detested the very people you should love. Maybe the people that have told you the most truth, you probably should have listened more often, and you decided that that doesn't matter. I don't really care what they have to say. Maybe you're guilty of publicly denouncing the very family of God you're a part of. What a shame. Why would anybody want to be a part of the family of God that only complains about other people in the family of God? Maybe you've just simply been indifferent to those in the church. Eh, I don't really care. I do my own thing. They're on their own. I'm on my own. Even though I come to church here and there. Here's what's tragic. Maybe the world gets more love from you than your own brothers and sisters. You know how many people that are children of God care way more for people outside the church than the people in the church? Let me, let me pay paint this picture for you. Jesus himself loved his bride so much that he gave himself for her. And that calling that we see here in 1 John 3 applies to you and me. If we want to love, we need to understand it in that context. Jesus paid with his life for the brethren. You need to see it through that lens rather than your own self-centered, I'm not getting what I want, lens. Sometimes the people of God do not love God or as God has called them to because we've tolerated things that we shouldn't have. Ignored the cries for help from others. But that still doesn't negate the call for each of us to love one another as Christ has loved us. Jesus loved us even in our sin. The love that you have for a brethren, for brethren does not stop simply because they're in sin. Sometimes correction is involved and that happens with us as well. But the love ought to still be there. That means when we've wronged each other to admit it and ask for forgiveness. And if you're on the other side of it, to forgive when someone asks for forgiveness and not hold it against them with a grudge for years that many saints do in churches. Sometimes it's just much easier to love strangers than those that know you best, isn't it? You met that nice guy or girl out in the street that talks to you. Oh man, they're so nice. I wish others were this loving. You don't even know them. They don't even know you. How are you so easily duped? 
God wants us not only to practice righteousness, but to also love our brethren. That is the part of doing that is commanded. We can't just pick and choose what he says. Believer, it's not optional for you to say, I love God and I don't love the brethren. You don't get to do that. That's not what God's called you to. In closing, Spurgeon says this, Christians, you are to love one another, not because of the gain which you get from one another, but rather because of the good you can do to one another.